Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome back to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to pick movies for us to watch, and we watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, and as people who love movies. And then we circle up for conversation. And this week, our guest Steve Bragaw has asked us to go watch All the President's Men, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask Steve what this movie has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with All the President's Men for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be February 11th, Transfiguration Sunday, the last Sunday in Epiphany, before we all dive headlong into Lent. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading or watching or following. But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Steve Bergat is back with us. Steve is a visiting professor of politics at Washington and Lee University. He's also a politics junkie, and Virginia has gotten to know him on the radio or on local election night coverage. And we thought that now a year into this current administration, it would be great to have him back check in and talk politics, movies, and theology. Steve, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back, guys. So, Adam and Steve, I'm going to count to 10 slowly, and if you're still there at the end, let's talk about Alan J. Pacula's 1976 film, All the President's Men, in which Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman recreate the investigation of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein as Washington Post reporters uncovering the conspiracy behind the Watergate break-in. This movie is such a touchstone that I think when I imagine Woodward and Bernstein, I still picture Redford and Hoffman in my head. The movie has become the unauthorized history of this crucial moment in our history. And of course, as our politics have circled back to Watergate in recent months, this movie has had a bit of its own moment. Not to mention, of course, that among this year's Best Picture nominees is Steven Spielberg's The Post, which basically bills itself as a prequel to All the President's Men and even ends at the Watergate. So maybe this is a movie that needs no introduction. But Steve, let me ask you this. Because as I revisited this, sometimes this movie feels like high art. And sometimes it feels like one of those made-for-HBO historical docudramas in which Julian Moore (laughs) plays Sarah Palin. And I wonder, did it hold up for you on a modern viewing? Is there meat here for us to consider not just as political observers, but as historians and theologians? What does all the president's men have to say to us about theology in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's funny because I approach this with a little bit of trepidation because all the president's men for me, I have to phrase this very carefully. It was the first grown up movie that I saw in a theater as a kid. I was was once explaining this to a class and I said it was the first adult movie I saw in the theater. And people stared at me. That was the first. I was 10. I was born in 1966. And uh, so Watergate was probably the thing. Watergate and the Bicentennial, oddly enough, are the, sort of the touchstones for why I became a political scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
became interested in, in teaching and writing and researching about history and, and politics was the confluence of Watergate. And in the summer of 1976, the bicentennial and all the president's men coming out to, at the same time was kind of key. So I always get a little bit nervous when I go back to it because this movie is such a legend for me, such an archetype. Um, to see how well it holds up. And in recent months, I've watched it a couple of times with uh, my older kids, uh, and even my youngest son, uh, who's now 13, wanted to see it. And I, I've just been so pleased how well it holds up uh, as a movie, as uh, it, there's some elements of it because it's creating this sort of a new genre, that there's ways in which we tell these stories a lot better now so that you get it. Um, so that there's like, oh, is this a cliche? It's like, well, it's not a cliche because this is the, this is the first time they're doing it. Uh, one of the things I like about it as a, uh, someone who studied Watergate and, and written about this and uh, teach it um, is that as our memory of the time has receded, right? So that the movie isn't, you know, dependent, the movie doesn't require you to know who E. Howard Hunt was, who uh, uh, the different, uh, the different Don Segretti, so you don't have to have the, the the knowledge that the person going to see the movie in the summer of 1976 would of who the characters were. So that actually the mystery of it, the fact that it's telling this detective story, um, the fact that it's talking about how the truth reveals itself slowly. Um, I love how that you never see Nixon except on the TV in the, the newsroom, but you have that very ear. There's several crane shots from the, the old Washington Post building. And then you get the sort of the, the camera pulls away, the crane pulls away, and you see the White House or the glow of where the White House would be in the distance. It almost kind of creates a, a haunted house quality to the movie um, that's certainly echoed by the claustrophobia of the garage scenes, um, the, the famous garage scenes with uh, Deep Throat and, um, and with... Uh, uh, Robert Redford's uh, Bob Woodward, who you know, for me too, that's the I think Woodward and Bernstein. I think it's it's Wood, it's it's Redford and and, uh, and uh, Dustin Hoffman is is the images that I that I see. Um, I think Ben Bradley. I think Jason Robards. Um, so yeah, so this is an iconic movie in so many respects that that holds up really well as both a movie, but then also. Uh, very eerily for us now, certainly in terms of our historical moment that we're in in this country right now, um, uh, with this, with the FBI and uh, with the president, and the question of a disputed election. Because I think what really works about this movie, why you know I was thinking it would be good for the the show, is is this question of the unveiling. Because the mystery of this movie is about who Deep Throat is, right? Who was Deep Throat? Um, and the character of Deep Throat is portrayed in the movie, and then who we now know who Deep Throat actually was, Mark Felt, who was the second in command of the FBI. Uh, and knowing who Mark Felt was, it creates this whole other mystery, which was, what was Mark Felt's motivation? We still, the two unanswered questions about Watergate, we don't know what Nixon's motivation was, right? We know Nixon didn't order the, uh, the break-in, he was instrumental in the cover-up. We don't know what Nixon's motivation really was. But more importantly, we don't know what Mark Felt's motivation was in leaking to the Washington Post. Um, and so uh, that's a, to me, that's what's so fascinating about this movie. It makes the movie work even better uh, over time.
Adam, what about you? How did this movie sit with you as a as a modern viewer? Uh, we're a, a little bit younger than Steve, so we didn't come up through Watergate formatively ourselves, but it still lingers over us. How does this sit for you as as history and as myth and as and, and as movie? So yeah, I, I encountered this movie first as myth um, back in the day as a as a sort of young film junkie you start turning your attention to, to screenwriters, right? That's when you begin to think that you really understand film. You, you like have your favorite screenwriter. And so I had a William Goldman moment where I was just, you know, consuming all of William Goldman's movies and came upon this, of course. And it had Hoffman and Redford and Jason Robards in it. And, um, and I knew vaguely what Watergate was, but up until that point when I, I can remember watching this as probably in my like young teenage years and, realizing that something interesting was going on, but never fully tracking with the consequence of it all. Um, and then revisited it a number of times since, and it can better track with the, uh, with the politics. But it's interesting for me to watch it now, Steve, because mm -hmm. in some ways it feels like the movie almost requires some prior knowledge about like what it felt like to be in, uh, in, in the United States in the early seventies, yeah. like um, it uh, for, for, for us to fully realize like how it's corresponding to some of the anxiety that was, that was swirling um, it. I, I over and over again was realizing I, I don't actually have that touchstone. Um, the closest thing I, I probably have to it is our current, you know, yeah. political administration where um there's some anxiety about what's going on, about how we tell truth from why. Um, and I think those themes actually do hold up pretty well. But um, the thing that was resonating with me this time watching it is, is how interested this movie is in showing you that words are powerful. The very opening moment of the screen of the, of the movie and the very end is a typewriter. Mm -hmm. Um, and this typewriter is typing something out. And um, and the sound design of that um, initial moment has obviously been um, messed with because it just sounds like a gunshot. It sounds like a whip cracking. It sounds yeah. like like weapons. Yeah. Um, and, and, then at the start, and it ends because when it ends, it's the, the teletype. It, it merges, the sound design merges from Woodward and Bernstein at, the, uh, at their typewriters typing away. And then you hear the guns echoing from the 21 gun salute of, of Nixon's inauguration. And then, but then, it, and then the guns of the inauguration then merge into the teletype of what happens over the next two years with all the indictments. Right. It's, right. It's a beautiful use of sound. Yeah, it is. And it, and it works well. And, and, and it's, it's helping us see that, you know, words can topple a corrupt regime and words matter. And as a preacher, I believe this, you know, I, it's, so, I have to hold fast to this idea that words can change things. I've devoted my life to this idea. Um, and I think it's a scriptural idea, you know, and I think it's important that the creation narrative, the first creation narrative in Genesis one is interested in promoting this relatively radical idea of monotheism where creation is the result of words mm -hmm. rather than some sort of divine combat as is common like in say the babylonian myths and the enuma elish um this elohim this word of the elohim is more powerful than marduk's storms 
Um, and then John uses, uh, like, begins his his gospel, and he wants to set up this idea of the word of the logos as the appropriate way to talk about God. And um, and in many ways, I share the convictions both of all the president's men and of scripture that says, that, you know, words matter. At the same time, I kept watching this movie, and I became really depressed because for all of the words that are written in this movie. And there's a typewriter, whenever they're in the newsroom, you know, again, the sound design is like kind of deafening. There's typewriters just going bop, 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 bop. Um, and there's lots of words and those words are trying to do something of consequence. And I couldn't help but be struck by the fact like that a lot of this story hinges on sort of dumb luck. Mm -hmm. Oh, completely. Right, where, where like the very first scene of the movie, the lookout, doesn't realize that the plainclothes police officers who've just entered the Watergate um, are police officers. And so there's some hesitation about whether or not he's going to tell the people who are breaking into the, uh, to the DNC. Oh, it's, um, even, it's, even, it's even better than that because they, they put the tape on the door the wrong direction, right? This is the whole thing hinges on that they put the, the masking tape on the self-locking lock instead of putting it like any fraternity boy or, you know, would know, you put the tape on the inside of the lock so you can't see it from the outside. They put it perpendicular so that the, the security guard sees the tape on the door, knows the tape is, um, knows the lock has been fixed. He calls the cops. One thing I noticed from the IMDB page that was funny, one of the cops, one of the arresting cops, arresting officer number one, is F. Murray Abraham. Right, yeah. It's, 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 like, it's like, it's Salieri, right? You know, and Salieri's part of the conspiracy, right? <laughs> so part of the deep state. Yeah, part of the deep state. But, I mean, it's also, like, there's this strange coincidence that we now know that Bob yeah. Woodward met Mark Felt at some yeah. party. And no, no, Felt, you know, met him at the White House. At the White House. And, met him at, at, as when, 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 uh, when Woodward was a courier for the... Joint Chiefs of Staff in the last year that he was uh, in the Navy, and uh, and uh, Felt just happened to be over at the White House, and they met in the waiting area of the National Security Agency, or the of the excuse me, the National Security Council in the basement of the White House, and uh, Woodward chatted, uh, Felt chatted them up, and uh, it's just a very bizarre scene, right? Uh, and and so and Felt had this right mix of of seeming indignation and vanity and righteousness to now try and help this r reporter yeah. who he met, you know, earlier. And so at one point I, in the movie, Deep Throat says to Bob Woodward, yeah. look, these are not smart people. Yeah. And yeah. I think he's right. But yeah. I also think that he, and maybe this movie overestimates being smart. Yeah. Um, because the whole system is designed to protect you. And even though you're not very smart, the administration and the government was able to sort of use layer and layer and layer of obfuscation to protect themselves. And I, I left the movie feeling like, what hope do we have that the truth can be uncovered, except for like dumb luck, you know? And, and so I, I, I don't know how to sort of square my idea and my love for the way that words can change things. But at the same time, realize that in order for words to change things, a lot of lucky things had to happen in order for this to be revealed. Oh, sure. Okay. And a lot of, and a lot of like institutional functionality too, right? I mean, one of the weird tensions in this movie is that like, it is a, it is a movie that wants to talk about the 
unraveling of faith in the White House as institution, but also still puts a lot of faith in other institutions that will create consequences once the truth emerges. True. So, uh, it, it creates, it has faith in other kinds of government bureaucracy. It has faith in the institution of the press itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I think that faith has been eroded in the generation since so that we yeah. now find ourselves in a position of like, okay, I, I believe in words. I believe in the power of words, but they also have to have, there's, there's gotta be some kind of enforcement mechanism that feels more tenuous now to me. Yeah. No, I, I, I see what you're saying. I think the, the way to kind of think that from what I took from the movie, both watching this as a kid and then seeing it now is that's the Jason Robards character, right? That's the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Ben Bradley and that it's, yeah, okay, it's luck. You know, the, the, the burglar, the, the burglars are caught by luck. Um, also because the burglars were incredibly stupid, um, and arrogant. Um, the, uh, that the story is assigned to Woodward by luck uh, because he's, he's not a national politics reporter. He's, a metro, he's on the Metro beat, right? right. Woodward, Woodward had been on the paper for about nine months when, the story, uh, when he gets this story, and he gets it because it's an arraignment. He's a court reporter just Saturday morning. It wouldn't go to the lead guy. Woodward doesn't get the, the first byline. On the first story, it goes to the, he contributes to, it, but it's the the main the, the the regular sort of metro reporter is the one who's writing the first uh, first draft of this, and then would and so yeah it's luck, but then it's persistence. See, this is why yeah. I, I love about this is that is that Woodward and then Bernstein uh, both in the story in the, in the in the actual record, but then also in the movie, uh, they they work it right. They work. The angles, right? That's the whole. Though I love about this is that the old school journalism is not the typewriters and all that. Although that's glorious, but it's the it's the the the, the times in which they go to Rob, Jason Robards with a story, and Bradley's like, you know, he puts his feet up on the desk and he's wearing the tuxedo and he's on his way out to the party and gets out the red pen and just stares at them and he tosses the article back to them. And he's like, you don't got it, right. right? You don't have the story. You haven't met the standard. And I think that's something that's been lost. Um, really lost, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard. It, 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 that's something which has declined. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's funny because it really hits this theme of the, uh, for me, of this movie. I think, that, you know, you pair this movie with uh, Seven Days of the Condor, right? Oh, yeah, I was thinking about that, yeah. Yeah, because it's the same, you get that sort of paranoia. Yeah. But see, the, the movie this one pairs with, the fine pairing of wine and cheese that this movie goes with, this movie, the movie you pair this with is the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? Mm. Uh, the Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne classic uh, Western. Sort of that last line, right? The whole movie is Jimmy Stewart's confessional. He's the senator. He's not the man who shot Liberty Valance. It's, right. it, it's John Wayne. And there's that classic line, right? It's, you know, you're, so you're not going to run the story. And the, the editor responds, no, sir, this is the West. Uh, you know, when... Uh, 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 with uh, I, I can't read my hair. With the legend, right? It's it's, it's, the le- it's when the legend uh, uh, becomes fact. Print the legend, right? And so there's the legend of uh, all the president's men, right? Because you have uh, Redford options the movie before the from from Woodward and Bernstein before the book is written, before the book is finished. Uh, this is part of the story of the book. 
uh, how the book gets written. They're stalled on the book because they, they're having trouble with the narrative uh, structure of All the President's Men. Because All the President's Men, the book, reads really different than the later Bob Woodward books because uh, he hadn't figured out his voice yet. Uh, and so there's actually interplay between uh, uh, Goldman uh, Redford brings Goldman on as the screenwriter. Goldman interacts with uh, with uh, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, mainly Woodward, kind of helps them kind of reframe like how to tell their story, right? Um, not in a major way, but or in a major way, not in like details, but more like okay, think of the story. How do you tell this as a story? Um, and then the most famous things about the movie um, are lines that are in the book. It's 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 uh, the whole you know the deep throats line follow the money the deep throats conversations right that's Goldman's distillation what Woodward and Bernstein were writing but it creates the deep throat character to be really different than the deep throat in the book and then very different than who Mark felt was and what his what we know about what he was leaking not just to the Washington Post but he was leaking to Time he was leaking to Newsweek he was leaking to different newspapers um, other than the Washington Post. Um, and, uh, you know, with some very interesting motivations, um, that we're trying to figure out exactly what his, his angle was. So, yeah, so there's the legend of Watergate that's then, uh, you know, based on the story, right. But it's become this art, you know, the, all the president's men has become kind of this mythic archetype in and of itself. And then it's begun to diverge like, you know, Lincoln of the Lincoln Memorial has diverged a lot from Lincoln the man, right? And even Martin Luther King of the Martin Luther King Memorial has diverged from Martin Luther King the man. Um, this story, you know, the, leg the legend has become fact. Um, and so we, we've printed the legend and the legend is the movie, um, the movie version of it. So do you find this movie helpful then when you are trying to teach this, you know, the political history of this time? I mean, or does it get in the way of kids trying to learn about Watergate and institutions or even kind of our modern stuff. Is it, is oh, it a helpful think, tool? Oh, totally. Totally. Because it's, it's a great, because it's, it's a great, not as it's not, a, it's not the ending point. It's the beginning point. Right. Um, be, and precisely they don't in this, one of the unintentional things the movie does is it captures an amber. like from, you know, Jurassic park with the mosquitoes, with the, the dinosaur yeah. DNA. It captures an amber, the Washington post newsroom of the early 1970s right right you know the the typewriters the you know there's the, there's the whole scene right where they're trying to figure out who ken dahlberg is yeah and and they're thinking dahlberg's kind of like a swedish name so let's look in the uh you know let's look in the minneapolis phone books right and they're rooting around they finally and then like someone comes in from the you know from the the, the papers morgue with a picture that he might it might be him Right. And so like the, you know, that, you know, the, the whole is compared to how different the movie would be with Google. Right. You know, and um, uh, th these types of things. So it's. It's not like one of these movies like Die Hard, where, you know, you add cell phones and suddenly the movie takes about five minutes um, and drains all the drama from it. it. It's it works because it's capturing this process that doesn't exist anymore. Or it works at a very different level and also captures that there is this sort of fate. You know the, uh, the 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 Sloan character, right? The uh, Meredith Baxter Bernie and the, uh, uh, the 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 guy who goes on and plays, you know, the Seventh Heaven guy, right? You know, right. yeah, as right. Hugh Sloan, right? And the, the 
idealism, right? Um, that that sort of feeling of the loss. Uh, Jane Alexander is the bookkeeper, mm-hmm. right? The paranoia that they, you know, the people who are working for the for Creep, uh, you know, the interplay, the tension between Woodward and Bernstein. They didn't really like each other, right? You know that uh, that there was a real tension between them because their styles were very different. Um, they were both precocious, but in very different ways. Um, there was a real tension there. Um, how do they actually work, right? Um, you know, uh, and so that, uh, you know, it, 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 it makes it really, it kind of, it, it makes this this great starting point. And then you start saying, well, who was, you know, who was John Dean? Who were Mitchell? Who are the people that are referenced? And then build out from that, right? Um, you know, it helps us get at those questions of, of, you know, why did Nixon's people think it was necessary to rig the 1972 election? or try to rig it, um, uh, given how well they won. And then you think it's like, well, they got to run against the weakest candidate, right? They wanted to run against McGovern. The whole um, meta operation they were involved with was about undermining the Democratic Party to get McGovern as a candidate, because McGovern was a the candidate they wanted, because he was the weakest. And that's what they got. What they were after in that particular break-in, we still don't know. Um, what they, why they wanted those phones bugged is, I mean, it's kind of, you know, it was June. It was a, a month and a half before the convention. What was the point? We don't know. It's never really been answered what they were looking for um, that night at the Watergate. So, Matt, um, earlier this year, we watched Spotlight, and it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch these movies close to each other. Yeah. Um, what, is, what, is, what is this movie doing that Spotlight isn't? Uh, in some ways, Spotlight now feels more derivative than I thought, than I remembered yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, after watching this. But at the same time, I, Steve had earlier talked about this sort of being the ur source of a lot of different yeah. like newspapery movies. Yeah, I, like what does it do? What's it doing well that you think is like that that keeps inspiring people to go back to it and try and copy it? I mean, to be perfectly candid, when I, as I was revisiting this movie, I kept thinking about how much better I thought Spotlight was. Yeah, me too. Um, just to be you, just yeah. to be really blunt, and it's it's yeah. Um, and and I mean that as a as a as a matter of the form of art, right? Like not not as a matter of historical docudrama. But I think that's part of my problem with all the President's Men is that there are pieces of it that now just feel like a recitation of events. Um. And, 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 and it feels like a kind of briefing. The other movie that kind of jumped to mind for me, and it's a movie that I really quite like, but was uh, from a couple of years ago, was The Big Short, which yeah, is yeah. The, the film about the 2008 economic collapse, which has this edge of like being didactic into it. Like it, it wants to, the, it teaches, it, it, it takes the whole film as a teachable moment which I feel like is kind of what Pacula does here occasionally. Like, let's make sure the audience understands all the pieces of this story. Uh, and, and so it, it stops being a film about character and it stops being a film that has what feels like kind of uh, helpful narrative arcs. Uh, all the president's men like barely has a climax. It, it doesn't really have a lot of, doesn't really say much about the human condition. And broadly speaking, it says something about these institutions and these people and this process at this moment, but it doesn't feel artistically interested in humanity in the same way 
that I think Spotlight is. So I that was my and 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 you know all full credit for being the text. Like they did this movie is is was something that no one had done before, and it's really good at what it does. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think that it if I was going to hold up one film as like the film that I want to use for how we think about journalistic process and what it, what what that work means and why it's important and the kinds of people who do it and what the unveiling does and what truth is in those conversations. I I'm going to go to spotlight every time to be blunt. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I totally, I, I totally agree with you there. And it's not just because I grew up Roman Catholic at that time. <laughs> the auspices of Cardinal law. May he rot in hell. But uh, the, uh, but yeah, but, but, but so this, the, all the president spends not telling a broader, it's, it's not, but it's, it's more the sort of the decline and fall. And part of the way the movie ends uh, is partly driven by how the book was written and how the sort of the, the schedule that they were on with it, that the, the one that speaks more to that would then be the follow-up to it, which is uh, the final days, which is the first, when you read that one, you're like, ah, oh, this is much more of a, what you recognize of how Bob Wood writes a book now and how then it's like the pathos of, of uh, you know, Nixon. You get to see Nixon up close because Al Haig totally, you know, um, gives, you know, gives Woodward the full access. Um, and so this one, you, you only, you never see the president directly, right? It's only through that, the newsroom television. Um, and it just kind of ends in that sort of way of the two of them sitting at the typewriters. Right. Yeah. Uh, so and yeah. I, think, I, I think that's the point. I, I mean, as I, as I hear you two reflect on this, the thing that's standing out to me is that this is a very linear movie, right? It's, and in that way, it's, it, it belongs out of a newsroom. Yeah. It's, it's not, a, it's not the floral takeout piece from the New Yorker. It's a news column, and the news column gets from A to B, and it tries to do it in economic and uh, and straight line, and the straightest line that it can that it can draw to the extent that it it has flourish in art. It's much, it's minimal as compared to the literature that was going on at the time, or uh, or anything like that. Yeah. And 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 I just keep coming back to this image of the typewriter, which is this sort of central one of the central images of the movie, which is. It, the typewriter goes one way, you know, it goes yeah. left to right. And yeah. that's, you can't write right to left. You can't go backwards. You can't circle around it. It's a very sort of linear way of, of telling a, a story. And in that way, it's, it's, I think it's trying to reflect the type of just pressing that, um, that the journalist has to do in order to uncover the truth. It's, it's trying to uh, to not be indirect, but to be as direct as possible, and and to that extent, I, I think it is a really interesting film because it's it's unusual that you see something like that, especially at this in this period of film, but also even now, like it it's stark to me that you know Spotlight has to have the moment where Mark Ruffalo does the acting thing, yeah. you know, yeah. where you go, you know, they knew. They knew, and he, you know, and he gets to do that. Um, but at no point does 
either Redford or Hoffman. I, I mean, I, if I, any- would say, I would say a great mashup would then be then Ruffalo, then you mash it in, then with uh, him as Banner, and he just kind of goes all Hulk smash. <laughs> well, and if anybody who gets to chew the scenery a little bit in this movie, it's Jason Robarts. Like, of yeah. course. That's him, like- him, the, the, the Jason Robarts and uh, Jack Warden and Martin Bosom, the three of them, right? So the, the back and forth between the editors to me as, you know, fans of those, of the, the, those movies from the fifties and sixties, you know, the Jack Warden and, and Hal Holbrook and, you know, Jason Roberts, but seeing Roberts and, and those guys just kind of go at it. Um, I just think it's great. You know, it, it's, it's because, you know, he's just, he's just chewing it up, you know, and that one scene when they're standing on his front lawn and he's just like, you know, don't worry, you know, there's nothing at stake here except the whole, you know, United States constitution. Right. You know? And so, uh, yeah, it's great. He's just, he's spitting out the, the scenery left and right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our first segment. Uh, before we move on, I'd, like to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. This week, uh, I want to let you know that I wrote something um, about the new Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. that is actually pretty appropriate, given the subject matter of today's show. Uh, I went down there for their Media Day event, and it was kind of wild. I have about a million thoughts, and a few of them made made it into the pages of the magazine. Long story short, I think everyone should go to the museum, mainly because I want to talk to people about it because it's such a sort of strange experience, especially as someone who who loves the Bible and um, and is interested in you know American religion. Uh, but go to the magazine now. Check out the article. Uh, I'm actually pretty proud of it. I think it turned out really well, and we'll put a uh, link to it on the show page if you want to find it. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, go to christiancentry.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, looking at the lectionary passages for year B, which is Transfiguration Sunday, the last Sunday in Epiphany. We remain in Mark for his version of the transfiguration. But we also have this beautiful passage where Elijah is taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. We also have a passage from Paul's second epistle to the church in Corinth about the light of understanding that comes from Christ. Steve, as you look at these passages, does anything stand out as particularly interesting given the themes of all the president's men? Oh, sure. The transfiguration, right? And the sort of the revealing of that, of... uh, of, uh, you know, who Jesus is and, and that passage and, you know, Elijah, and Moses, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the appearance there. And of course, Peter, you know, or excuse me, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Peter being Peter, not getting it, right? Um, what's going on? And I think, you know, the thing for me that stands out with all the president's men is that revealing, like, over time of, uh, of who Deep Throat was and Mark Felt, right? When it, when it, when it was mm. conclusively said, right, you know, here, Deep Throat was Mark Felt. And, you know, it's long been the rumor. And you suddenly get that feeling, you get the sense of who this guy was, right? Mark Felt was not a hero of the Republic, right? Mark Felt, as second in command of the, the FBI, was the head of Conantel Pro, right? He was the yes. one, he was the one, right, who was in charge of the FBI program that was doing all the bugging of the weather underground. I don't know if he's the one who, uh, I don't think he was in the FBI, uh, the, even the position when they were bugging Martin Luther King, but this is, these, are the, these are the guys, right? And there's almost a, one theory of explaining Felt was that there was a, 
that they, they were he was offended by how badly the job the burglars had done, right? And uh, the FBI's were the were the people who traditionally do something like that. Um, Felt was actually put on trial uh, when Carter was president for uh, things that they were doing with the break-in. And the person he had, one of the people he had come testify on his behalf at a sentencing hearing was Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon had a pretty good idea that Felt was deep throat. He wasn't 100% sure, but he kind of ruled it down. It was kind of a short list, and Felt was on the list. But Nixon still went in to court and testified on Felt's behalf when Felt was being, had been uh, found guilty as a sentencing hearing. One of the, got to be the one of those bizarre moments in American history. <laughs> That's wild. It is, and Nixon did it, and he later addressed it in one of his later memoirs uh, uh, by saying, well, this was, you know, this was important, you know, was protecting the prerogatives of the presidency and, and what the FBI needed to do, what the FBI needed to do. Um, and uh, so it's, it's weird. And so we don't know what Felt's uh, motivations are. It changes the tone of the, the movie incredibly. But it helps us to remember, I think for me, what I take from the transfiguration is what you see, what you're seeing isn't really necessarily what's going on. Right. And we hope right. for these moments of epiphany. We hope for these moments of unveiling where we get to see we don't get to see the whole truth, but we see a little bit more of it. Right. We see a little bit more clearly in those moments, you know, uh, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, you know, up on Aslan's mountain where things suddenly become a little bit more clear and then you don't have all the answers, but you, you have one or two. And then you have to leave the mountain, go back down into the world. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so this is, I guess, the, the big takeaway from all the president's men from this is. You know, we've been in these types of hard spaces we were in right before, and you're not necessarily going to get a perfect answer, but you get a, uh, a little bit of unveiling that the power of the word and the power of persistence can not make the world perfect but it, and not make the world just, but it can bend the arc of history, right? I'm mixing metaphors, but bend things a little bit closer to the way they should be. Yeah. How about you, Matt? How did this movie connect with the Transfiguration Passage for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's kind of a, a similar place. I mean, I think Steve has nailed some of that about, you know, you, the Transfiguration story is about seeing the king for who he is. And there's some interesting parallelism with how this movie unfolds. But I also think there's something in Mark's telling of it that is about um, kind of doing slow work that I want to lift out. Uh, and it, it gets to some of my favorite sequences in the movie, uh, it, the, the all the president's men is remarkable because uh, Woodward and Bernstein almost never actually consume the news. Uh, <laughs> there's there's yeah, their television's totally. happening all the time, but they are always in the background. I'm working mm -hmm. while the TV is on, especially in that famous last sequence where they're showing Nixon's inaugural. Um, and even like the newspaper comes to his house, but he doesn't read it. He just pulls out like the secret memo that's inside it. There's all mm -hmm. these places where they are not actually getting caught up in the day-to-day -day consumption of news. They are doing slow work. Uh, and there's something really, I think, important for us to hear that, uh, especially in this day and moment. And I think the transfiguration in Mark does it too, because Mark has this constant, kind of famously, this constant urgency to it. Everything always happens immediately in Mark. And immediately they went out, and immediately they go to Galilee, and immediately they go to Capernaum, whatever it is. And then the transfiguration story starts six days later, mm. uh, which is just a drastic change of tone for Mark's gospel. And they go up to the mountain 
And we get in this kind of like ethereal time out of time space. We see Jesus for who he is. Uh, and the disciples want to act immediately, right? They, they're they still an immediate. They're like, we're going to build a house. We're going to hang out. But the answer is not quite that simple. They, they have to go back down to the valley. And more importantly than Jesus in like this weird Markan thing says, instructs them not to tell anybody about who he actually is. And there's a lot of different ways to read that messianic secret piece here, famously so. And I think one of them just has to do with doing slow work. Like, what they want out of a Messiah isn't going to emerge right now, and it's not going to change everything right now. They have to go do discipleship that is harder, and it's harder because it's slower. And, and I, I think part of what we see in this movie, and and I think the way that we have to live in response to the times that we are in, is um, to wa- watch that difference between watch that balance between responding to every new um injustice and every new bad tweet and every new revelation and also keeping ourselves in the discipline of doing our own slow work so if i were preaching those together that's that's how i would do it so matt i i'm I'm working on this piece right now about you know what does it mean to preach this side of of (laughs) Uh, the this current political administration and um, and as I talk to people, they the ministers that I talk to, and I wonder if this resonates with you as somebody who preaches every week. Um, it feel that there's this like constant temptation to to become part of the pundit class, yeah, and to like just constantly respond to whatever's happening in the, immediately in the news and. Um, and in doing so, you you lose the ability to do the sort of like careful, thoughtful research that you know can actually support conclusions. Right. Um, and it feels like the culture has really um, has set up a new priestly political caste yep. that is the pundit, and um, and the draw of the preacher is to try to sound more like the pundit because that's the one who everyone's listening to. Um, and yet, at the same time, it feels like the 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 sound of the pundit is actually works against the necessary slow work that's required of preaching. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that entirely, and it's it's hard because there's um th- there are times when there's stuff that I really want to say, and and I have to check and figure out like is this is this part of the long building up or is it just like the stuff that I want to get off my chest and where, how do we, how do we find that balance and how do we do it faithfully and how do we do it in ways that, that hold community? Uh, and I think there are times, I don't think that this is a, a cut and dry issue, but I, I do, I'm, I want to hold um, that image of them typing in the background while the news plays and they're not listening to it. That that seems really important to me to hold and and part of my part of my heart for a while. Mm-hmm. Likewise, Steve. I mean, as someone who is is a scholar of this stuff, you know, scholarly work requires some measure of patience and carefulness and thoughtfulness. Like, and it it too is slower work than the pundit class. But you know, from your from where you sit, uh, like, what type of urgency are you feeling in the work that you're that you're doing as compared to to the type of scholarship that you want to create? 
Oh, well, incredibly. I, and, and I couldn't agree more because for me, you know, as someone, you know, with a PhD in political science and teach, uh, teach this stuff and, and write about it and talk about it is that is exactly that is, is exactly that sense of not trying to react to what is the latest thing, right? And keep your eye on what the story is, right? Um, whether that be, you know, in terms of something you're teaching or how to teach uh, the Constitution, how to teach American politics, but also how to, you know, what, what is the big picture? And recognizing the big picture of the story takes a while to reveal. I mean, for me, there's that image. The, one of the enduring images of this movie is the the mimeograph, right? The the Xerox of the uh, of the phone book for the for the uh, committee to reelect a president, uh, and they're 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 it gets marked up, right? As they're scratching off names because everything is just alphabetical order, and they're trying to figure out who is who based on the sequence of the numbers, and they're just they keep getting doors. Door after door after door after door gets slammed in their face, and they, they, you know, they meet with a person and it's the same name with the wrong person until finally, right, they knock on the right door and they find Jane Alexander, right. So it's that keep knocking, keep working, and not get distracted. Matt, your your catch there that they're they're making the news, they're writing the story, but they're not consuming it. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that's spot on. I mean, that's a great observation. And there's one point where they do watch something on TV, I think, in the editor's office. But it's but there's several yeah, moments where. Yeah, it's it's because it's, it's, it's Ron Ziegler because they got the story wrong. That's right. Why yeah. Actually watching it. And, and Bradley looks like, you know, Jason Robarts looks like, you know, if, you know, he's going to do the Emperor Palpatine, <laughs> you know, you know uh, melt them with Sith lightning. Right. right. You know, because they let him down. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Adam, yeah. what about you? Is something else pop out for this movie as you think about the lectionary? Yeah, so uh, I, I really love the Elijah story. Um, I feel like it's a story that's so full of of, of deep pathos, um, especially as uh, you know, as a teacher and a mentor, uh, and their their student kind of um, figure out what it means to to pass on this knowledge and what it means to take up one's mantle. It's a, it's such a rich and, and lovely story. In fact, it would have been a, a great story for our last episode about the last Jedi. But in, in this instance, the thing that was sticking out to me is, um, is that El- Elisha knows that his teacher, Elijah is, um, is going to die or if not die, be taken up to God. And as Elijah is about to be taken up in this fiery chariot, he tells Elisha, like, what do you want from me? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of what you got. And Elijah goes, you don't know what you're asking for, man. Um, but I keep thinking about what that, that double portion. And what Elisha is going to need in order to do his job going forward. And, um, and I kept thinking that maybe this is a struggle of each generation of profit, which is in order to meet the needs of the coming age. Um, you can't just get what the previous generation had. You need a little bit more 
than the previous generation because the world and its schemes become more sophisticated. The ways in which power and corruption arrange themselves become harder to entangle and power cloaks itself in these, like in this movie, in jargon and impenetrable legalese. And all of that dampens any fire for change that might actually come its way. And so I keep thinking about Elisha asking for this double portion and thinking, yeah, that's exactly what you need from the previous generation to make any difference in the coming generation. Mm. And the thing that's that that's concerning to me is that the um, the lectionary cuts off the story. And I would, if I were preaching this, I would actually add the end of the story where um, Elisha picks up the mantle of Elijah, and just like his mentor, he slaps the the water of the Jordan. So they've. Initially, they cross over the water of the Jordan so that Elijah can be taken up by this chariot. And in order to cross the Jordan in this sort of moment of another of the Jordan of another body of water parting, Elijah slaps the sea and or the of the river and it parts. And then Elisha at the very end in this beautiful piece of symmetry does the same thing, even though he's lamenting uh, the loss of his mentor and teacher but also lamenting that he doesn't know how to do any of this. And he's totally steeped in his own insecurity. And, um, and yet the water still parts for him. Uh, and I love that we get to receive the lineage of a people who were like dogged in their pursuit of truth and righteousness, whether it's, you know, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, or or the the great saints of our faith, and we get to pick up their mantle. And to pick up their mantle is to pick up a whole host of insecurities that come with wearing that mantle. And one of them is that we feel like a total fraud. Um, but God is faithful to give us an extra dose of the portion. And I keep holding on to the fact that I think God is faithful to each preceding generation to give them what they need, mm-hmm. even in the midst of their insecurities and their struggles. I love that thought. That's that's great. Yeah, nice. Thanks, Adam. All right. I think, gentlemen, it is about time for us to wrap up this segment. Unfortunately, that means saying goodbye to Steve. Steve, thank you so much for coming back and hanging out with us some more and talking uh, talking politics and movies with us for a while. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice, Steve. All right, Adam, it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's a chance to get one more little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, talk to me. What's your postlude for the week? So in, in watching this movie, I was reminded how good Jason Robards is. I think I think I first realized how good Jason Robards was uh, when I was obsessed with Magnolia in the late 90s. Um, but that is Jason Robards at the very end of his career, um, playing a part that was... Um, was actually written for him by Paul Thomas Anderson and um, and sort of makes use of some of his frailty and some of uh, uh, but is still such an impressive vehicle for his acting. Um, the thing that I want to talk about is that um, Robards is is well known for making his uh, making his name as an actor playing leads in Eugene O'Neill plays. Um, most notably, he was the sort of prototype, or not prototype, but he was the um, the lead actor in the Iceman Comet. He plays Hickey 
And all performances, hence, have sort of been compared to Robards because he was so good. And that part in particular is so damn hard. And the movie is, I mean, and the play is almost four hours long. And so it's a freaking marathon of a play. And by all accounts, he was a force. And when he would talk about it, he would say that, like, when he began the play, he didn't know that how he would get through it. But then the the words of Eugene O'Neill would actually power him through it. And um, and so I went sleuthing for some old footage to see if I could find him playing Hickey in the Iceman comment, but I couldn't find any. Um, this is one of the rare times when YouTube comes up empty. Um, but I, I did find uh, a, the pretty good movie of The Long Day's Journey Into Night, um, which is uh, has Catherine Hepburn in it, has Dean Stockwell, has Jason Robards, um, and is... Um, maybe O'Neill's best play. Uh, the movie is pretty good. Uh, but while I was watching clips from the movie and I'd seen the movie a long time ago, um, I was reminded about how like hard it is to wrap your mouth around O'Neill's uh, words because he's very dense and he's got a lot to say. And there's, um, and as I was watching these clips of the long day's journey into night, um, I was reminding how good it is. And I, and I pulled it off my shelf and I started reading it again. And I was just sort of entranced by Eugene O'Neill again. And um, in this per play in particular, it's autobiographical um, to a point. And, um, and really it's a story of two brothers and their parents um, and a messed up family. And, uh, and really the play itself is written as O'Neill trying to forgive his own family. Uh, and apparently um, in some of his biographies, people have, have found that like he would be writing Long Day's Journey into Night and he would be sobbing. And you could hear the sobs coming from his study as he was trying to finish it. And originally he wrote it not to, for it to never be performed, but his wife disobeyed his orders and suddenly like now we're, we've got a Pulitzer Prize winning um, play. Um, and at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm sort of rambling, but at the end of the day, I'm just reminded about how deep and penetrating and powerful um, writing and creating can be. And as I think about our preaching, uh, so much of our preaching is autobiographical and uh, whether we're talking about ourselves or not. Uh, and while our preaching can get really gratuitous and terrible and self-centered and solipsistic, um, it can also be a way to exercise our pasts um, and where we can make sense of the world and, I f and where we can find wells of forgiveness that we need to do this job. And I'm, I'm deeply inspired by the long day's journey into night and O'Neill's ability to try and write a play about a really screwed up family that resembles his own as a way to forgive that family. So that's that's what's kicking around in my brain and just trying to figure out how how I, too, can create in such a way as to forgive the things in my life that need forgiving. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. How about you, Matt? What's going on with you? What are you thinking about? Well, we've talked a lot about words today and the power of words. And I thought I would kind of zag at the end and talk a little bit about images. Um, I've, I'm seeing a lot of movies right now. I'm seeing a lot of Best Picture nominees. I don't want to circle around to that at some point, but I'm, I haven't quite seen everything I plan to see yet, so I'm going to kind of hold that. But I, I thought I would highlight instead one of the 
not best picture nominees that I've seen, um, was one of the best animated feature nominees that people may or may not have noticed, which is a little film called Loving Vincent, which is, uh, I think, out in some limited release, but it's also on iTunes right now. Uh, this movie is an investigation into the death of Vincent van Gogh. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a detective story where like we meet all these folks who knew him in his final years, and we, we try to figure out through this kind of imaginary um, protagonist. We try to figure out what was going on and, and what caused him to die and what caused him to, to want to take his own life or what were the circumstances, all of that. But, but this movie is not about plot or writing in any way. It's all about visuals. So the, the movie is hand-painted, and every frame of it is hand-painted in the style of Vincent van Gogh. So it's literally like hundreds and thousands of frames that were painted by professional painters who were effectively um, painting over, in many cases, kind of rotoscoping. So they've got live footage, and then they're painting over it. Or they've got CG footage, but then they're painting over it frame by frame to create this effect. And it is jaw-dropping. Uh, a, a lot of the characters that they use are kind of, in some cases, historic characters, in some cases, composites, but they're made to resemble character, famous characters from his paintings. Mm. Um, a lot of the backdrops that they use are kind of backdrops that are taken from his famous landscapes. So it's like it's a movie that takes his body of artistic work and, and kind of posits that you could make a cohesive narrative space from it and then it puts his real life in that narrative space and kind of plays around which is it's just a remarkable thing to watch uh you know i don't always love rotoscoping it feels like the rhythms and the pacing of it can feel a little odd but nonetheless this is like one of the singular animated productions i've ever seen not words in this case just kind of brush strokes and i I find that really powerful too. So that's what I'm commending. Loving Vincent, if by any chance it is playing at a theater near you, go see it on the big screen. I just watched it on iTunes and it was beautiful, but I kept kind of being um, uh, regretting that I hadn't made it out to see it somewhere uh, a little more formal. Anyway, that's what I've got. That's great. I mean, yeah, when, when, when you can create a fictional space that feels familiar from and yet is sort of finding something new to say about that space. That's, that's really special. Yeah. I've, I've, I've long thought that there, I, I want someone who's a better writer than me um, to create like a world where all of the parables were happening. Right. Yeah. Like amazing that these things, that these things would be like, they would have their, like this, like an actual place. And these people had, and, I, I love the parables so much, but I, I, I sort of long for some creative genius to s gather them all together and find these characters and how they interact with each other, given these experiences that they've had uh, in Jesus's own mind. Uh, I, 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 I want some cohesion there and, and, and hope that someone could, yeah, could do something like that. If only because it's, I love that idea that you can build that cohesive fictional space. Yeah. It's like the parables of Jesus cinematic universe. Is that what we're talking right. about here? Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, right. like the, you know, the farmer who's sowing these seeds, you know, has to go and meet, you know, the, uh, the wicked tenants. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We, we should, you should trademark this. There's, 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 there's gold in the right, hills. Well, you heard it here. This is public. <laughs> this is public. 
All right, so that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at Technicolor Jesus. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Muskowski. He is the straw that stirs the drink. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Chili Con Carne. All right, Matt, that's it. Thanks. Thanks, buddy.